Well, before we begin our study together tonight, let's pray. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. Well, I want to start tonight by telling you something I'm ashamed of. And I, sh I shared this on Wednesday. But I, I had eye surgery, cataract surgery, in both eyes. And it was only on Monday that I actually felt grateful. That's what I'm embarrassed by, really. I was taking a shower and I could see everything perfectly clear as I had been able to for the last few weeks. But I could see the shampoo and the soap and my razor and I realized, wow, since I was 10 years old and had to start wearing glasses, I had this dream that one day I would wake up and I would be able to see the room without the glasses. And I can. I can see you, I can see your faces, I can see from the front row to the back row, and even back there, you guys in the media booth, I can see you. And it was like an epiphany, it was like the presence of God was so real. And I just said, thank you, Lord, for more than 50 years I was looking forward to this, hoping against hope. And, and there, was a, there was a day years ago where I woke up and I remember thinking, I hope this is the day. And I opened my eyes and I could see really clearly because I had fallen asleep with my contact lenses on. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, it's just the contacts. That doesn't count. But I'm not wearing glasses to see you. And it was just so, so beautiful. When I realized that I hadn't been grateful I'd sort of been hedging it, you know, like, well, I need reading glasses now, which is true, but that, for some reason, was not mixed with gratitude. It was more like a clinical response. But on Monday, I really felt grateful. And I started telling the Lord, and then I thought, this is embarrassing. I haven't thanked the Lord for this, you know, since I had the surgeries in December. And now it's February, so I went all of January with nothing, no gratitude, and parts of December with no gratitude. But on Monday, I felt grateful. And I can't say it's because anything happened. It's simply I became aware that for more than 50 years I had been hoping to get to this moment. And now I was at it and I was saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I've been so hoping for this and now I have it. I am grateful. And so I expressed that gratitude and something happened You'll discover this in life. If you want to have a joyful life, you, you can't really make yourself joyful and sustain it. But you can discover a secret. And the secret, I'll share with you, then it won't be a secret. But it, we could say it's a key. Gratitude is a key to a joyful life. 
when we express gratitude, when we sincerely feel it and we express it and we thank the Lord and we say thank you, Lord, for small things, for big things, for anything, and we speak with sincerity and specificity, thank you, Lord, I can see. Thank you, Lord, for more than 50 years I've been hoping for this day, and here I am. Thank you, Lord, for this. When you are, declare to the Lord what you're grateful for, you will find something that your joy starts growing, and it's directly related. Now, if you forget this, as I had, you may wonder, why am I not feeling joyful? And then you can try to make yourself joyful. You can be a cheerleader or something like that. It doesn't quite work. But when you simply express gratitude to the Lord, the natural and supernatural response inside of the human heart is joy. Gratitude produces joy. How many knew this already? You've, you, you know this. You've experienced it. How many have ever forgotten this. How many of us know it, but we don't always walk in it? Yeah. Well, I want to encourage you, be, be mindful of this, because it opens things up and can change the nature of, of life itself. And I found as I was being grateful, and I was experiencing more joy, more and more was coming to me, and I had more reason to be grateful and more reason to be filled with gratitude. And then I found myself not even trying, but just being more joyful. I know this is a, a key for us. In this week's Torah portion, we read about something that that may not make a lot of sense if you don't remember this, this concept we were just talking about. The idea is that, that God wants the children of Israel to build a house for him. And it's, at one level, it's kind of crazy. God is the God of the whole universe. He's created the universe. And the idea that humans can build a little place where God can live you know, this is, it's, it's a crazy idea. Until you understand something. And that is what's in the heart of God. And he explains in Exodus 25 what's in his heart. He tells the people some very basic things. He, he tells Moses to tell everyone this. Tell the people of Israel to take up a teruma offering for me. And take it from anyone whose hearts compel them to wholeheartedly want to give. And a teruma offering is like the offering of the best from the top. You know how cream rises and cream is the best part of the milk? You could compare it to that. Teruma is the first portion that's the best. And the Lord says, give me that. And if you really have a desire for me to have a house with you, and you're stirred up and you're saying, oh, I was just waiting for this, then receive it. An another way that is translated is, uh, receive it from those whose hearts stir them to give it. 
They're motivated. They want to. They don't feel like there's any pressure. This is a desire that they have. And then going to verse, um, verse 8, it says, They're to make from me a sanctuary so that I may live among them. So now we know what the motivation is that God has. I want to live with you. I want to be present with you. And this, theologically, is a fascinating idea. It's not a crazy idea. It's fascinating. It's the idea that God, who is the God who's created the heavens and the earth and the whole universe, can actually come down and be present in a place in the earth and still be everywhere and still be in the heavens, and still be outside of the universe, he can enter into the universe and be right there with the people. And so the people who are stirred give, and it's a, it's a beautiful thing. There's, a, there's another idea associated with this, and, and that is God can be with anybody. He can visit anybody. He, he came to Moses, do you remember how? In a burning bush, right? He came and he visited Abraham, surprise visit. And it was a confusing visit because it wasn't clear. Is, is this a man? Is this an angel? What's going on? Who are these guys? And why are they hungry? but it turned out to be the Lord in the company of angels. The Lord can visit like that, but by saying, I want to dwell with you, I want you to build a place for me, the Lord was saying, I don't want to just show up. I want to have a house that you can come to, where you can be with me, and not only that, where you can be with each other as you're being with me, because I want to be with you. You see, this is the heart of God. I want to be with you. I want to be with you individually, but I want to be with you together. And I would compare it to a father who loves all of his children and enjoys being with each one individually, but especially loves when they're all together, when they're sitting in his house at the table and they're enjoying each other's company. Can you relate to that? Some moms can relate to that too. You just love it when the kids are there. How many can relate to that, moms? You have this feeling, oh, it's good. Or maybe you grew up in a family that was like that. My mother had six kids, but she always encouraged us to invite guests over. And we didn't actually have to tell her there would always be enough food. We just need to show up. And my father, who was in radio, had um, sometimes he would just have like uh, musicians or other people in town for work, and he'd show up with them at dinner time, and mom was always ready. So she, I think she cooked for 12, even if there were three people there. But she had joy when we could be together. It was a delight for her, for us all to be together, for my father too. And I think the Lord's like that. He's saying, I want, I want to have a house because I want to be with you. 
I want to dwell with you. I don't want to just pop in. I want to live with you. And among you, I want you to live with me. And when we get that in our hearts, that this is the desire that God has, and we want it, we ourselves want the same thing, you know what? We find new life in it. This is what God knew. He knew if you fellowshiped with him and you fellowship with people who are walking with Lord too, you'll become a different kind of person than if you're just off on your own with people who don't care about God. And if you just live by yourself and you don't associate and you don't have an impact on others, it's gonna be a lonely and insufficient life. Abraham was an interesting fellow because he went to a land where no one knew God and he established in his family a godly household. And then he had an impact on those around him. You see, you know if, if you've got the heart of God, if you can have an impact on other people so that they don't have any barriers that would keep them from getting connected to God. It's great to be connected with God. Even if you're not all that religiously inclined, if you want to live a better life, you should find the Lord because the Lord is a key, the key to the better life. And there is no better life than being with the Lord. Now last week, we were talking about Shabbat and finding rest with the Lord. And I wanna go back to a passage that, um, that we looked at. It's Isaiah 30, verse 15, you can turn there. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength, but you wanted something else, you would have none of it. In repentance and rest is your salvation. This is very important. Now, a lot of, a lot of people don't know what repentance is. When we were serving in the former Soviet Union, we found that most people didn't use repentance on a regular basis. It's not a regular word. Uh, it, but the same is true in America. Isn't it true? If you've got a problem student in your classroom, as a teacher, you're probably not gonna say, Charlie, you need to repent. <laughs> it's not a regular word and it's so often misunderstood because some people think repentance means feeling really bad. And uh, even at Yom Kippur, when, when we as Jewish people are focusing in every synagogue on repentance, there's a tendency to go through the motions. It's like, well, I feel really bad today. And hopefully if I feel bad enough today, I won't have to feel bad tomorrow. It's like once a year feel bad. But feeling bad is not what repentance is about. Repentance in Hebrew is, uh, is a completely different concept. It has to do with the direction of our lives. To repent means to turn around and change direction. And so the idea is this, if you can imagine, you're, you're going in your life in any direction, but in the direction you're going, God is to your back. 
He's not at the front. And so whether you go this way or you go that way, you're going without regard to the Lord. And what repentance means in Hebrew is to turn around. And then to get a view of God and start aiming in his direction and moving in his direction and keeping him focused front and center so that he's, he's your, your goal. He's the one you're aiming for. And sometimes when, when we make that turn to the Lord, we find, oh man, there's a lot of stuff I got a lot of stuff I was into. But you know what the, the, the killer sin is not all the misbehavior, all the little sins. The killer sin is turning our backs on God and living without God. That's the real uh, lethal sin. And the Lord is saying, Salvation is found in repentance, in turning in my direction and going towards me, and in rest with me, finding your security with me. In quietness and trust, you'll find strength. It's not the noisy life, it's the quiet life that will make you strong. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't participate. Well, we looked at that last week, but I want to go to another passage, just a few verses down, and starting in verse 18. Because it, in between those passages, in between those verses, it describes, well, what happens when you, when you turn your back on God and you try to, to find strength and salvation in other sources? But by verse 18... We discover something, how God works to bring us back and to restore us. And look at what it says. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore, he'll rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice, and blessed are all those who wait for him. O people in Zion who dwell in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. He will surely be gracious at the sound of your cry. Then he will hear and he will answer you. Very interesting here. What's in the heart of the Lord? Not only does he want to dwell with us, he wants to be gracious towards us. Some people think of God as the great punisher. And uh, like the mean, angry God. But that's not the God we read about in, in Torah or in the prophets or in the Brit HaKadoshah, the New Testament scriptures. The God we read about is a God of mercy, a God who is longing, who has desires that are so strong, he's waiting, he's waiting and waiting and hoping for the opportunity to be gracious. And the Hebrew says something really interesting. It says in verse 19, when you're in trouble and you cry out to God, he'll hear you and he will answer you. When you cry to him. Now think about all the other ways you could cry. You can just cry with uh, disappointment. You can cry 
with regret. You can cry because you're mad at people. You can cry with, um, with anxiety. Your anxiety uh, may cause you to cry without crying to the Lord. You can cry all by yourself. Have you ever been inconsolable and you just feel terrible? Um, it's not the same as crying to the Lord. That's more like crying on the inside rather than crying to him. And that's why it's important for us um, not to confuse also telling other people about what's troubling us, but not telling the Lord. This is a, a, a common problem for us as, as people. When we're in trouble, we start telling other people about how bad it is and what we need and this and that. And that does not solve our situational problems. But when we bring our worries to God and our anxieties to God and we mix them with gratitude, Philippians tells us, then we, we will be heard, as Isaiah tells us. When our prayers and our petitions are not fetching, they're not just complaining, and they're not just worrying out loud, but they're directed to God so they are mixed with thanksgiving and honor and humility. Thank you, Lord, for all the times you have been merciful to me, for all the times you have protected me. When we remember with gratitude and specificity and concreteness, then we talk to him, and as soon as we're crying to him, he hears us and he answers us. When the children of Israel were in slavery, it appears that their first cries were not to the Lord. They were just crying. They were sad for good reason. And it's understandable. But if you want to know how the spiritual world works, it's important to know how it works. It doesn't just, you don't just connect with God by crying about your troubles. You connect with God by crying to him about your troubles. Sometimes it's even good not to tell other people about our troubles, but to tell him about our troubles. I remember once I was going through a difficult situation with a family member and I was just like paralyzed with worry and anxiety and, and I flopped on an ottoman belly down, and it was like, <laughs> And this was how I was processing it. It was like, Ugh! And I felt the Holy Spirit ask me something. It's an embarrassing thing to share, but it, sometimes it feels like my job is to be embarrassed. Because I, I do enough things that are embarrassing, I think I have a repertoire to draw on. But there I was flopping on the ottoman and, and like, Ugh! feeling all my worry and all my trouble deep inside. I'm probably the only one who's ever had these kinds of feelings. But I felt like the Lord was speaking to my spirit. And he asked me a question. Here's, here's the question. I remember this one. He said, haven't you learned anything? 
And I thought about it. I thought, I guess not. <laughs> that was my genuine answer. It's like, if you're asking me that, I think the answer is no, I haven't learned anything. And he was showing me that I was just feeling the trouble, but I wasn't using it to cry out to him. And so I caught myself, and I stopped what I was doing, and I started praying to him about the things I was worried about in the same level of detail that my worry was happening inside of me. Every single anxious thought I turned into prayer rather than just worry. And you know what happened? I started having fellowship with the Lord and he started ministering to me and it was a way that I was casting my worries upon him but it wasn't just the removal of the worry. He started answering me. And he was showing me, aha, now you're using your troubles for good. Because now you know how to pray. Because you didn't know how to pray when you didn't feel the trouble. See, sometimes we, we suppress the emotions. We think, oh, if I have anxious thoughts, it's not good. That's not true. Your anxious thoughts can be the very material by which you can pray to God effectively. Because then they are transformed into faith when we're crying out to God with trust. It's a fascinating thing. And if you've ever thought, oh, I need to push down my worries, remember this, the Lord said, cast your worries upon me. Well, how do you do that? You don't press them down. Worries are like the jack-in-the-box. How many of you remember a jack-in-the-box? Can I see a show of hands? It's like a generational thing. Some of the younger people have seen one. It's like, wow, I saw one once in a museum. Well, I had one. And what I remember about the jack-in-the-box is, you know, you'd have this box and it had a handle. Do you remember? And you'd turn the crank and after you turn it enough and it plays music, then Jack comes out of the box. Right, and when you're young enough, you don't know when it's gonna happen. And I, I, I remember, you're like, what the, ah! and the, being startled was joyful. Our grandson Jacob went through a period where he loved to be startled if he was in control of it. Yeah, and he'd hide himself. And Sandy, his grandmother, my wife, would hide somewhere, and then he'd go looking for her, and she'd jump out and go, wah! And he would go, wah! And he was so happy, and then he'd say, let's do it again. <laughs> when you're in control of it, it can be joyful. And the jack-in-the-box and that whole thing can be, uh, can be f wonderful. But if you compare it to pushing down your worries, you understand something. You push them down, they're not going to stay down. They're going to come up when someone turns your crank. When someone puts you under enough stress, or some situation puts you under enough stress, 
All of a sudden, Jack is out of the box. In the same way with worries. Unexpressed, suppressed worries are destructive. Worries expressed to God are constructive. And when we learn to use our worries effectively, it makes a difference. And so I, I try not to forget that night on the ottoman, just worrying, blah. And then the Lord saying, have, have you learned nothing? Haven't you learned anything? And it's like, obviously not. Well, what can you learn? Bring your worries to the Lord and use them in prayer with your faith, with your gratitude, with your remembering the good things, as Philippians says, by remembering what's beautiful and pure and what's good and excellent and wonderful, and mixing gratitude in. When you do that, your, your worries are transformed. They're cast on the Lord. You end up with lighter burdens, with an easier yoke, and with God's help. God says, I'll help you. Well, it's the heart of God to be compassionate to us, to be useful in showing mercy to us. And I want to close with a passage from Mark chapter 3, starting in verse um, 13. It's, it's, It's describing something you may not see the connection to, but I want to show you if I can. This is a time when there were a lot of people who uh, were, were wondering who Yeshua is and whether they should follow him, and he had big crowds sometimes. And the question was, who, who was he going to let in close, and who would become his true close disciples and, and ultimately apostles, which in Hebrew means uh, the ones that can be sent out, shlichim. So Mark chapter 3, verse 13, Yeshua went up on the mountain and he called those who he himself wanted. This is very interesting. Who did he call? The ones he wanted. And they came to him. It's an interesting dynamic. He has the want, but they have the response. We want also. It's very much like the passage in Torah. The Lord says, I want to live with you. Who wants me to live with you? Who's stirred up about that? And the people that are stirred up say, we'll help. We want to give for this. Whatever we've got is at your disposal. What do you want? Very similar. He called those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Verse 14. And Yeshua appointed 12 so that they would be with him. Let's say that. They would be with him. Another translation, so that they would accompany him. Another translation, so that they would keep him company. But the simplest words, they would be with him. And that he could then send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He wanted, to, he wanted people who wanted to be with him, to spend time with him and to receive from him, to join him and to accompany him 
in ministry so that he could send them out. You see, they couldn't go out if they couldn't spend time with him. They couldn't go out if they wouldn't spend time with him and those around him. He was looking for those who valued being together with the Lord and being together with those who wanted to be together with the Lord. That's the whole idea from the Torah. Why build a house for God if you can just meet with God all by yourself? Because the Lord knows that he loves you individually, but he loves us together and wants us together just like a parent wants their children around the table together. Not just one over here and one over there. And you want them to love each other, don't you? He wanted to send them out with power and authority to serve other people, to tell them about the Lord, to give them the good news. What's the good news? Well, Isaiah is famous for proclaiming it. It's like there's good news for the poor, there's good news for the brokenhearted, there's good news for the sick, there's good news for the ones in prison, there's good news for those who are mourning. And he wants people with him who will help other people come through the barrier of separation that keep them away. And think about what the barriers are. They're really clear. The barrier of sin, the barrier of iniquity, the barrier of guilt, the barrier of shame, the barrier of fear, the barrier of ignorance. You may not know it, but some people want to get connected to God, but they don't know how. They don't know what they're to do And they need someone who knows what to do, who can say, here's how to do it. There are people who are so ashamed of what they've done that they feel like there's there's no way to pay for it. Would that we all feel that way. Then we'd understand why God himself came down and took on human form and became the perfect sacrifice and why Yeshua died for us so that we could say, well, if God paid the price, he, it covers everything. Everything. God's looking for people who want to draw close to him and want to draw close to others and don't want to leave it at that. They want to see more and more people receive the blessing that comes from getting right with God and getting, uh, and, and getting close to God and not being hindered. Now, if you think that being religious is the way to do it, then you'll look for religious rituals and practices that will substitute for getting close with the Lord. They may substitute for repentance. I'll do these religious things, which may be good in and of themselves or may be good when they're mixed with repentance and faith. But all by themselves, they're not going to save you. Salvation comes through repentance, through turning to God and finding rest for our souls in him by turning to him and turning away from everything that would pull us from him. And it's not that you find the religious way. It's like, oh, I found a religious path. Bunch of religious folk are going on it. Well, everybody knows that if you've traveled in religious circles long enough, you're going to find yourself surrounded by hypocrites and 
and play actors and people uh, who are acting as if they are religious, but really they're just religious. <laughs> they're not wanting to be close to God and they're not humble before God and they're not in love with God and they don't even know they need God, but they think, well, if I do this and I do that, it's good enough. And we don't want to be like that because God's not fooled by that. We draw together, the, the word uh, from which religion is formed is an old Latin word that means to be joined together, to be bound together. It's a good word. It's not a negative word. Uh, the apostles used it to say there's true religion. What is true religion? It's to show mercy to the orphans and the widows, the poor and the hungry. That's true. That's good. But in, in the modern era, some people get confused and think, if I just do enough religious things, if I go to the right number of services or if I participate on Yom Kippur, or I do this or I do that. That's enough. No. What's enough is to turn to God with all your heart. That's enough. To turn away from everything that would keep you from that. And to deal with all the barriers that would hinder you. Uh, true guilt. True guilt before God. Not just emotional or psychological guilt, but real guilt. I'll close with the story of my my dad's cousin um, was uh, an accountant and he embezzled a lot of money. And he got caught. And uh, he, not my dad, but his cousin told me the story. One day around the table where a bunch of us were together and it, it, the story was, when he was brought before the judge, the judge said, how do you plead? And he said, I'm guilty, Your Honor. I did it. It was wrong and I knew it. The temptation was too great, I'm ashamed of myself. I didn't spend the money because I felt so bad. I put it aside. And the judge said, this is the first time in my courtroom anybody's acted like this. And he, because of his plea, he was found guilty, but he was put on probation for a number of years. He returned all the money, and he lost his license to practice. But he had humility, and the key was he told the truth, and he was repentant. And the judge said, you're the first one that's ever talk like this. Isn't that interesting? Most people have lawyers who say, don't tell anything like that. But that judge acted like God Almighty in this regard. God is a merciful judge, but a true judge. And for those who are repentant, who admit their guilt, their sin, he has forgiveness. If we confess our sins to the Lord, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But King David once wrote a psalm that said, when I, when I kept my sin inside and I was silent about it, I wasted away. So when we are looking for real life, 
Come to the one who can give it. And tell him the truth, the honest truth, the humble truth. And, and truly be repentant. Because God knows the difference. When you're looking over your shoulder and saying, I believe in you, as you're walking away from him, doing your own thing, and you say, yeah, hallelujah. <laughs> he knows, oh, you don't like the idea of repentance. And you know what his answer is? I want to be gracious to you. Turn around. Come back to me. Come in my direction. And when you do and you start crying, it's like, well, I can't come because I'm so guilty. Yeah, you can. Admit your guilt. Admit your sin to me. Put your trust in Yeshua who died for you. And be real about it. When you do that, you know what? I hear you. I answer you. I will rescue you. And you'll find rest for your soul. That's like the connection between building a house for God and becoming part of that house and finding real life in God. It's a great passage we're reading this week. And it helps us really connect with Yeshua and his ministry to us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for abundant mercies and daily mercy to us. Thank you for showing us kindnesses. And Lord, we want to be useful to you. We want to be the kind of people you want to be with. We want to be the kind of people who want to be with you and with each other. And we thank you that you give us congregations and communities and family where we can worship you and serve you together with joy and with gladness. And let it be, Lord, that, that we have care and concern for those who are, who are looking for you and in desperate need of you. We pray this in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Well, let's close with Aaron's blessing. And if you're standing by yourself, if you don't mind moving just a bit so that you are not standing by yourself, that would be good. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep watch over you and protect you. The Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace. In the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat shalom.